All right, church. Title of the message this morning is Opposition to the Mission. That's the title of our message. Opposition to the Mission. You're going to find the text in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 11 to 40. So let's dig into the Word of God, shall we? Let's dig into what God has to say to us about His mission, about opposition to the mission, and how He's called us, church. So, Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. Here we go. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samathras, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women and who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But... When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. And ordering the jailer to keep them safely, having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. Lord, help us understand the opposition. Help us understand the mission. And help us understand who it is that directs us in the mission and overcomes the opposition. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's the deal. If the title of the message is Opposition to the Mission, what's the mission? That's the first point. What is the mission? And who directs it? Well, church, this is by way of review. The mission is simply this, 
to make disciples of Jesus Christ, a disciples of follower of Jesus Christ, someone who bows their knee to Jesus, receives Jesus as their Savior, puts their faith in Jesus Christ alone, what he did on the cross to die for our sins, his resurrection from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins, his ascension into heaven as the ruling Lord of all, and he follows Jesus and his teachings. It's what Jesus said we're supposed to make, disciples of Jesus who obey all that he's commanded us. That's the mission. And then, to take that group of people who become followers of Jesus and form them into a community of followers of Jesus. That community is called what? The church. Look around you. We're doing it. You're here because the mission is to be here. To obey Jesus. What the Myers are doing today, they're obeying Jesus. They're followers of Jesus. They're in community with others, the Georges, Kelsos, us. That's the mission. Now, here's the question. Who directs the mission? Well, whose mission is it? It's Jesus' mission. He gave us that mission as a church. So he is the one who directs the mission. Corey preached on this two weeks ago. Look at verse 7 of chapter 16. This is going back to Corey's message. And if you put the map up there, please. I get to use my pointer, laser pointer. What little boy doesn't like to use laser pointers? Just don't point them in anybody's eyes. So, what's the mission? Well, in verse 7, we find them. And when they had come to Mycenae, so here's the mission, right? Missionary journey, Paul. So they come to Mycenae, which is right there. When they came to Mycenae, verse 7, We learned two weeks ago, they attempted to go into Bithynia, which is up here. Modern-day Turkey, all right? Up here would be the modern-day sort of uh, the the Soviet, former Soviet Union um, uh, countries and provinces here, Georgia, and different provinces along the Black Sea. Here's modern-day Turkey, modern-day Greece, Europe. So they wanted to go from Mycenae to Bithynia. And what do we read in verse 7? But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is directing the mission. But instead, look at verse 8. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. So they go here and they go to Troas, which is right there. Use this map for those over here. So Troas would be right there. Troas. So in our text this morning, we find them in Troas. But I want you to pay attention to something. Look at verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately. What's the next word there? We. We. First person, plural, pronoun. We. We. This is the first use of the first person, plural, pronoun in the book of Acts. What does that tell you? That the person writing the book of Acts has joined the team. Who wrote the book of Acts? I know the Holy Spirit inspired it, but who wrote it? Luke. Luke, who is a Greek 
physician joins the team for the first time in Troas. Luke, who most probably came from Macedonia. In fact, Luke came from the city of Philippi. Right there, where they're headed in this text. So Luke is a physician. He lives, or he's in Troas, and he meets up with the team. Many people believe that Paul had an ailment. He had a problem with his body, his eyes, whatever. He's already been almost killed uh, at least once that we know of. He's been beaten. He's been, I mean, Paul has been messed up physically for the sake of the gospel. So he's probably going to see Dr. Luke, and probably going to see Dr. Luke. They team up. They join the team. In fact, some people say that the Macedonian vision, this, this guy from Macedonia that Scripture tells us <clears throat> came to Paul in the night, may have been Luke. I mean, Luke's from Macedonia, so he says to them, hey, come on over to Macedonia. He's from Philippi. We need your help. Could be. But, but he teams up with them there. And then we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So who's directing the mission here? Jesus. Jesus is directing the mission. The risen Lord Jesus has now initiated mission Macedonia. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and now Luke are going to Macedonia. They're going to Luke's hometown, Philippi. Why? Because Jesus has directed them to go there. They're going to cross the Aegean Sea. This section here is called the Aegean Sea, right in through here. And they're going to cross, you see that little line? And they're going to go by, I love this, Luke, being a Greek, being someone from Philippi, has a love for the ocean. Look, notice how Luke describes them crossing into the Aegean, across the Aegean Sea from Troas to Macedonia. Look at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. So they're going to this place called Samothrace, which is, or going by this place called Samothrace, which is an island in the Aegean Sea right along this area here. And one of the beautiful things about this island, it has a 5,000 foot peak. So I just want you to imagine yourself. All right, you're on a cruise ship, maybe the Royal Caribbean, maybe Carnival, whichever one you're on. You're on the deck. You're hanging out with Paul, you know, Timothy, Luke. You're wondering why they have these heavy, bulky robes on. You have shorts and flip-flops, but whatever. And you're cruising by this 5,000-foot peak that's, that's coming down to the Aegean Sea. The wind's in your face. Do you feel it? Can you kind of taste a little salt air in your face? It's kind of like when we took a cruise. We went down to the Southern Caribbean. We were on our way to Barbados. We passed by St. Lucia, which has these beautiful volcanic mountains that go right down to the ocean. It's just gorgeous. Imagine yourself looking at it. You know, several of our families have taken cruises here recently. Those of you who did that, you're back there right now, aren't you? You probably wish you were back there right now. And they were with... Luke, who's telling them about Philippi, though they've never seen it. It's about 150 miles from Troas over to Neapolis. It's kind of like when we went on our cruise, we were on our way to Barbados, the southern Caribbean. And we had been told about Barbados by a Bayesian, someone from Barbados, who's in our church, Michelle Coward. She was describing the island of Barbados. And I remember on the ship going by St. Lucia and just anticipating, excited about seeing this island that I'd heard so much about. And it proved to be every bit as beautiful as Michelle 
described it. So they're doing the same thing. They're going to to Macedonia. They're going to Philippi. They've got the word of God with them. They know they're going to preach the gospel. But it's sort of this joyous, peaceful time. Jesus is directing them on this cruise. It's his mission. So he's directing it. But here's the point I want you to hear very, very clearly. He's directing them into opposition. Because soon the cruise is going to be over. And they get back to the port of Miami and get back in their cars and fight rush hour traffic to go home to find problems and work in reality. And no one's serving you every one of your meals and picking up all your dirty clothes and doing everything for you. And it's not unlimited buffet and it's not unlimited food and entertainment 24-7. It's back to work. And so they are getting ready to hit some opposition. Here's the application point I want us to hear. They obeyed the risen Lord Jesus who directed them in the mission. Will we? Will we? Where is the Lord directing us in his mission? Will we? And when we do, we will receive opposition. Point two. So what is the opposition, Al? What is the opposition and who overcomes it? Well, we see the first bit of opposition as we are introduced to Lydia. Look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate of the river, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. So if you can put the map back up there, please. We see that Lydia is from this area called Thyatira, which is right in here. Do you see that? Okay, but right now she is living in Philippi. And her name is Lydia. Some people feel like this whole area was called the kingdom of Lydia. So it was, that's probably not her name. She's probably the woman from Lydia. And Thyatira was well known for garments. And for these garments that had these beautiful purple uh, dyes. So Lydia was most probably a wealthy woman who sold garments. Think of a, a really nice garment, a dress, ladies, like Christian Dior. Okay, so like she comes into Philippi, she it was known she's got the best clothes, the best dresses. She's a seller of garments, but she's also a God fear. Look what it says here. She was a worshiper of God. Look at verse 14 B, who was a worshiper of God. What is a worshiper of God? A worshiper of God is someone who believes and behaves like a Jew without being one. So she's Greek, but she's believing and behaving like a Jew. But her heart was closed to the truths of the Messiah, of Jesus. Because we read here in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What is that telling us? That the first opposition that we receive is an internal opposition, and the first opposition is a heart that is closed to the things of God. Point two, A. The first opposition we receive is a heart that is closed to the things of God internal opposition, the flesh. She didn't really understand about the Messiah. So as Paul is talking to her about the Messiah, it's the Lord who opens her hearts and she pays attention to what Paul said. And look what it says in verse 19. 
15. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So God opened her heart. Her heart had been closed to the things of God. God opened her heart. He overcame this internal opposition. We can relate to that, can't we? We can relate to people to whom we have shared the gospel and their hearts are closed to the gospel. There's opposition to the mission and God is the one that overcomes it. God, Scripture teaches us it's God who saves us. It's God who opens our hearts. Application. Let us boldly proclaim Jesus, trusting, as Paul did, that he's going to proclaim the truth of the gospel and it would be God that would open Lydia's heart, this wealthy businesswoman. And she is baptized because she's professed faith in Jesus. And then she invites them to come into her home. The risen Lord Jesus opens hearts that no man can shut. But let me broaden the application for a moment, church. Because sometimes our hearts are closed, not in the the sense of salvation to the message of Jesus per se, But sometimes our hearts can be closed as Christians. We can experience the opposition of unbelief, doubt, a heart that is closed to the Lord in our everyday life as a believer. We can't quite appropriate the promises of God in certain areas of our life. We find ourselves opposed, an opponent from unbelief. And this can be the most devastating opposition, this internal opposition, this this hard, closed heart to the truths of God. Let me give you an illustration. Recently, I have been battling anxiety. Anxiety about things in life that aren't going my way. And and I've been memorizing a scripture. I've been memorizing Philippians 4, 4 through 7. You may be well aware of what this scripture. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then what? The peace of God. The past is all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this last week, as I'm getting ready to leave Miami for a conference in Orlando, I experienced a huge fight, a heart that wanted to be closed to this truth, wanted to just be anxious. Because we had some rapid-fire trials hit us this last week. They weren't huge. No one's beating me with rods, okay? I'm not being thrown in prison. But our roof did spread brought a leak in a couple of places with all that rain we had a week and a half ago. And then we had plumbing problems in our upstairs bathroom. And the way we found out is my wife walked in the door, the front door, and plop, plop, plop. So I get the phone call, honey, I don't want to bring you down or anything, but I got some water dropping on my head right now, and it's from the upstairs. Isn't that a great feeling? <laughs> and then in the midst of that, I get a notice on the internet that I violated a copyright somehow. And someone is not happy that I downloaded one of their TV programs without paying for it, which I never downloaded it. My kids didn't download it. And then finally, two of our cars broke down. In fact, the last trial, the last trial, I'm literally driving out of Miami Wednesday morning with Johnny Duetti, who was with us. There you go, right there. 
pastor from Bolivia. Thank you, Johnny, for being here. He came to the Council of Elders meeting in Orlando. We're driving out of town. Johnny is there, and, and I'm telling these guys, I'm on the phone with my wife. She says, honey, the car, I mean, it's like the car's like going like this. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> She's describing it to me. You're like, I can barely talk to you. <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm saying, don't worry, honey, just drive home from the public, right near I-75 on Miami Gardens. And, you know, we'll get a tow truck to take it to our mechanic. And I'm on the phone with my son, Joey. Joey, listen, your mom's driving home, and she's not sounding real good in the car. So get ready to go pick her up. She gets stuck on the side of the road. And literally, as we're driving to I-75, I see her coming with the flashers on. Yeah. Johnny's saying, Al, pull over. We'll help her. And, and Des said, no, I'm okay. You know, Joey's here. I said, no, I, that's what sons are for. They'll take care of their mom here. You know, we're good. But I wasn't good. Now, I want, to t- I want to teach you something here. You may think, this is silly, Al. No, it's not. God grows us in these silly little events of life with eternal character. Now, I'm glad this anxiety isn't that I have cancer or I'm unemployed. It may be someday, but guess where you learn how to deal with it on that level? When you deal with it on a smaller level, when you see your wife's car wobbling away from you with the flashers on and your roof's leaking and you don't know why. So it was at that moment that my heart was closing to the truths of God. God, opened my heart to the truth that I've been memorizing. I've been memorizing Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Desi and I walk three times a week. I'm memorizing it. I'm saying, honey, and I've got it memorized. But is it here? Is my heart closed to that truth? Do I really believe that God has this? Am I anxious and complaining? Or am I trusting and rejoicing? That's what it says there. And I can tell you, by God's grace, friends, God gave me the grace to win the battle a little bit. Now talk to me next week when I really find out what's going on with one of those leagues. But, you know, God opened my heart to believe His promises, to believe all that God is for me in Christ. And though we still have some unresolved issues with the roof and plumbing, it looks like it's not going to cost me as much as I had anticipated that one of the repairs on the cars was more than I anticipated. But the issue is peace and trusting God. God opened my heart to believe his promises. He overcame the opposition of a closed heart like he did with Lydia, like he will with your family members when you go share the gospel with them and they give you that blank look. God can open their heart. It's his mission. I don't have to stress about this. I can trust him. He said, go preach, Al. I'll open the hearts. I'll make the disciples. My spirit is directing you. Jesus is directing us. You know what I love about this thing with Lydia? You know how you know that she opened her heart, or God opened her heart? You know how you know? She opened her home. She said, come on into my home. She's a wealthy woman. She probably had a compound. Probably had lots of servants. She was baptized in obedience to Jesus' command to baptize those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the great commission. And she opened her home. If your heart's open, friend, your home will open. Is your home open? Has God opened your home? Second opposition was spiritual, B. So what's the opposition? Firstly, it's internal, it's the flesh, it's a closed heart, whether to people that aren't saved or to Christians. Second opposition, it gets a little more intense here, it's the devil. <laughs> and so, I, I'm not mocking, but you know, it, it's, it, it's the part a lot of us do kind of think, ah, eh, 
Although here in South Florida, we're probably more aware of this than most, okay? But it's Satan. It's Santeria. You know? It's voodoo if it's in Haiti. It's people that are really superstitious that freak out. I talk to them all the time. They don't believe in God per se. He's not their savior. But man, they're kind of freaked out about the spiritual. Drive by any canal in Hialeah, you see these little bags with headless chickens in them, you know? Santeria, if you don't know about that. Put your curses on the little animal, cut the head off, curse your enemy, whatever, throw the bag in the water. It sounds crazy. It happens a lot. If you grew up in a Hispanic home like I did, um, you know, you heard about curanderos, healers, but not in the Jesus name. Curanderas. You had little potions put on you. You had little things done for you. Because, you know, you've got to cover every base. I don't know if I really believe in this thing, but I kind of do. So in case there's a devil, in case there's Satan, let me just take care of them. Like buy an insurance policy on in case the devil's attacking you. You can't mock God. Oh, he exists. And there's activity that's demonic. Still today. But we don't have to fear it. That's the point. Because look what happens in verses 16 to 18. We already read this. They're walking to this place of prayer. Lydia has already opened her home. There's probably converts now. A church has been born in Philippi. But there's a slave girl who, who, is, who is inhabited by the spirit of Python, which, which was in the Greek pantheon. Python protected this temple of Apollo. And so Python was this, was this snake-like spirit that when it inhabited a person, it enabled them to do divination. People really can do this. God in the Old Testament said, don't do it, Israel. Which means it's possible to do. The witch of Endor is one example in the Old Testament. Go, go look it up, witch of Endor. God said, don't do it. Don't do this stuff where you're tapping into the dark forces, to spiritual forces. But this girl was inhabited by the Spirit. She was a little slave girl, and she was earning lots of money for her owners because people were very superstitious then, just like they are now. How many people do horoscopes and fortune-telling even now? It's like, don't waste your money on that. People want to know. And so she was making them tons of money. But, but these spirits were all exercised by Paul and Silas and by the Lord Jesus, just like they were when Jesus was on earth. And they, were, they, were, they didn't like it. And so she would shriek. The Greek there is she would shriek out the following. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. But it was a, a blood-curdling scream. Day after day after day after day. And one day, the Apostle Paul, as it says in the text here, became greatly annoyed. That word in the Greek there, greatly annoyed, has a range of meaning. Annoyed is one of the ways you can translate it. But you know, there's another way you can translate it. He was troubled. He was grieved. Look, I I wasn't there, okay? And uh, you got that one, right? Okay, so I wasn't there, but... But there's a range of meaning that I can perhaps interpret this way, and others have done it. It wasn't that Paul was annoyed that she was shrieking. Paul was troubled that this little slave girl was oppressed by demons and being exploited by slave owners for money. He loved her. He was was troubled and grieved. And so if you notice in the text, he doesn't speak to her. He doesn't scream at her. What does the text say? Look at it. Look at verse 18. Paul, B, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to whom? The Spirit. 
Spirits exist. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And that spirit came out of her. Look, we we don't have a record here like we do with Lydia and the jailer that this slave girl was baptized as she made a profession of faith. I think she did because she sandwiched in between Lydia making a profession of faith and being baptized and opening her home and the jailer making a profession of faith and being baptized and opening his home. So I think she was. I think that this little slave girl, I don't know her name, will meet her someday in heaven, became a member of the church. She became a member of the church with the rich woman, the rich businesswoman, and the jailer who was maybe a retired army officer. this little slave girl, the worst thing you could be in the Greek world at that time was a woman and a slave woman. God said, I love her. I'm going to set her free. That's the mission, guys. Do you care about the little slave girls in Miami and Dade and Broward counties who are being exploited, who are possessed at times? who live for the spirits of of our age, particularly in South Florida, that pulsates with sensuality and just pulsates with greed and materialism and me. And they're, they're in bondage and they're slaves and they're shrieking. And do you know the mission is to preach the gospel that they might be set free? Jesus overcame this second opposition. And finally, the third opposition was a political opposition. I put political there, number three, political, because internal, spiritual, political, that's it. That's the reason why I did it. You know, they all end in L. But really, if you you think about the three enemies of the Christian, biblically, they really are the flesh, a closed heart. They really are Satan, demonic forces, and it really is the world and its system. I believe the political here is the world system. And listen, it wasn't just political, it was political and economic. Look, look what happened, verse 19. So they cast the demon out of this little slave girl, she becomes part of the church, and, and look what happens, 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul. Now, they seize Paul, and they bring him before the magistrates, and we read in verse 20, here's what they claim that they were doing. Verse 20. These men are Jews. So right there, there was a latent anti-Semitism in the Roman Empire. This Greek culture, Greek language, Roman Empire was the power, and there was a latent anti-Semitism. People just didn't like the Jews. So the first thing they do is they play on racism. They're Jews. But even worse, they're disturbing our city. In Rome, if you disturbed a city, if you caused a riot, that was an offense that could end up with you being crucified outside the city, as an example. Don't mess with Rome. Do not cause a problem, Al. Shut up. Conform. Caesar's God. Roman political system. It's the world. Don't make waves at work. Don't make waves in school. Look what they said, verse 21. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. They're saying that we should do things that we shouldn't accept or practice as Romans. Friends, our preaching of the gospel will disturb the city and offend the laws and practices of American life. Let's just start with marriage. Today, it is against our culture to advocate a biblical definition of marriage that restricts it between one man and one woman. If you say that, you will be brought before the magistrates and you will be, it will be said they are disturbing our city 
and they are advocating things that we shouldn't accept or practice. We've turned a corner in our nation. We will be accused of being homophobic. Like Paul and Silas were accused of fomenting riot. And though we have not been beaten with rods yet, physically, we are certainly taking a beating to our reputation. I listened to an African-American sports talk host who is currently advocating that fellow African-Americans embrace the fight for gay marriage as equal to and like the fight for civil rights in the 60s and 70s. He's a pervasive voice, but he's pervasively wrong. And one of the reasons I listen to him is so I can gain understanding of the African-American thinking. I respect this guy on many levels. He's a bright man. He's an unbeliever. Tells it like it is. And one of the things that moved me in this is he creates a false dilemma or a false dichotomy in logic. It's the, it's the either or. So what he says is either you're for equality in marriage, what they say, for gay marriage, or you're homophobic. False dichotomy in my mind. Because you see, there's a third option here. There's a third option that says, no, I'm not going to advocate for gay marriage because the Bible doesn't teach that. But nor am I homophobic. The sin is not any worse than any other sin. Heterosexual lust and adultery, murder, stealing. It's sin. The Bible calls it sin. I'm not going to flinch from that, but I'm not going to assign a stigma to that. No, no, please don't assume that. But there's a third option, and that is to say, God in his word defines marriage as one man and one woman. And marriage actually is a picture of Christ in the church. So if you change marriage, what's at stake is something even more than marriage. It's the gospel. Men, we represent Jesus, a man who gave his life for a woman. And women, you represent the church. I'm going to fight for that, but without being rude or a jerk to homosexuals. What, th- what this guy says is, he's a big, bulky guy. He played offensive tackle when he was in college. He said, for years, I was homophobic. I persecuted and did harm to homosexuals, and now I see I was wrong. He, his instincts, in one sense, are kind of good, but because he's not a believer, he doesn't understand. He doesn't value this. Okay? I'm not going to bully them anymore. Okay, that's good, but we still have to speak the truth. Oh, I hope that helped you. So, what happens? They beat them. Oh, and this one's powerful. They beat them with rods. But pick up the, pick up the, uh, the sermon now in verse 25. Pick up the text in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening with them. Oh, friends, these men had been beaten wrongly. These men had been thrown into the maximum security prison. They're in stocks. Their backs are bleeding. Their arms are bleeding. Their legs are bleeding. They, they are suffering, and it's midnight, and they are unjustly suffering. But, oh, church, hear this. This is the main point. When this happens to us, and it will happen to us, instead of raging against the machine, instead of raging against a political system, instead of raging against other people, oh, friends, don't sit there and curse man at that point. Bless God. 
they were me, dude, I would have been, get me out of here. I'm a Roman citizen. Later, he's going to make that point. You can't do that to me. You can't do that to us. Get me out of here. Be clanging, whatever. You know, I always think, you know, they have these tin cups, you know. Like, I want my lawyer. <laughs> They're not doing that. They are sitting in their own blood, maybe their own vomit. Their arms are shackled. Their legs are shackled. They're bound by the very mission that God called them to. Jesus directed them to that prison and that beating. And they are blessing the Lord. Some people say that in these prisons, at night, they would cram all the prisoners who could kind of walk around during the day in a compound into one room. Very uncomfortable. Why? For security reasons. These guys might have been in the very darkest part of that room with their own bodily fluids around them. It was not a pretty sight. It didn't smell pretty. They're no longer on some ship going by the 5,000-foot peak of Samothrace going, isn't it beautiful? And the wind blowing in their hair and, you know, sipping cappuccinos. I like it when Jesus directs me to that kind of mission. But they're sitting perhaps in their own feces. Dried blood on their backs. Surrounded by evil criminals. And they're blessing God and praying. They're singing what we sang this morning. And these guys are listening to them. Oh, church, may we be a church that does not curse man when we are wrongly accused, but blesses God. And what happens? No time to go into it. An earthquake is sent by God. And at midnight, that earthquake rocks the foundations of the prison. If you imagine all the prisoners were in one room, this Philippi wasn't a huge city. All the prisoners were in one room. It just would take one gate to open and then imagine your shackles because the walls shake and somehow the shackles come off the wall and now you've got however many mad prisoners or at least prisoners that want to get out of Dodge fast. And the lights go out and the jailer assumes they all left and he took an oath as perhaps a former army officer that if anybody escaped, he would lose his life. And he knew that in the Roman Empire, the way he might lose his life is to be crucified. So he's thinking, I'm going to die anyways. I do not want to die being crucified. I'll just take my own life. And he's got the sword and he's ready to just thrust it into his body. And then he hears a voice. And he recognizes that voice. It's the same voice he'd been hearing singing at midnight. Maybe he'd been keeping him up. I don't know. Maybe he was a little irritated with the voice. I don't think so. I think he was intrigued by the voice. Jailers were cruel men. They weren't moved easily. They'd seen a lot of suffering and inflicted even more. But he hears this voice, and it's the voice of the Apostle Paul, and he cries out. Paul cries out here in verse 28, and he says, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. Man, God's moving. And in that moment, the jailer runs in and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul 
goes on to preach the gospel to him in verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in their house. And then that, that night, the, the jailer takes them to his house and washes their wounds with, 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 with water. And the water now, that very dirty water with the blood and, the, and, the, and all the stuff that he washes off of Paul and Barnabas. Then he says... I want to be baptized because Paul, I'm sure, in preaching the gospel, preached the Great Commission. And so the very water with which he washed the stripes of Paul and Barnabas, God then washing by the stripes of Jesus the sin of that jailer. Probably the same water. And he's baptized. Do we have a vision for jailers, cruel, evil men and women who are ignorant? God wants to use us as we bless God rather than curse men when we're wronged and abused. And we preach Jesus, no matter how much it's against our culture, how much it's against our laws, but we do it with love and respect and gentleness. Here's the main point of the message, folks. Here it is. The risen Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus overcomes opposition to his mission. The risen Lord Jesus, he's directing his mission. It's his mission. He overcomes the opposition to his mission. The opposition isn't to me, it's to Jesus and his mission. But since I'm enlisted in that mission, I will feel it. At the end of this text, Paul does assert his right as a Roman citizen. They ask him, hey, can you leave now? Probably by the next morning after the earthquake, they're starting to think, maybe that slave girl was right. Maybe these guys are servants of the Most High God. By the way, for a Greek, that would be who? Zeus. For a Jew, it's Yahweh. They're Greeks. They're thinking, maybe these guys are Zeus's men. And man, we blew it by beating them. So they, they go, hey, could you guys just leave the city? We don't want any more earthquakes. Paul says, um, you imprisoned and publicly beat Roman citizens? No, you come and ask us nicely. But he didn't do it the way I would do it. You know that? I'd do it with a chip on my shoulder like, you come and ask me nicely. And by the way, my attorney is going to sue you. And I'm going to, you know. And we, no, 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 no. Why did he do that? I apologize because the sermon was supposed to be over five minutes ago. But hey, we're having fun, right? So we'll just stay a little bit longer. Why, why did Paul do that? To vindicate himself? You can't treat me that way. No. What, what did Paul want to ensure? That the young church in Philippi, which was growing, by the way, there were many converts. There's a letter written to the church in Philippi called the Philippian letter, the Philippians. He wanted to ensure that this young church would have protection. Now he's trusting God, but here's what he's thinking. There's a young church that meets in Lydia's home. I want them to publicly say we treated you wrongly. You're not causing a riot. You're not preaching something against our culture necessarily. You're preaching something that is good. I want to ensure that this church I'm going to leave behind is okay with the authorities. Isn't that great? So he argues at the appropriate time, and there's a time to argue with our government on legal terms, definitely. And to pray for our government and to say, no, you can't do that. But notice the spirit in which he did it. And he's doing it for the sake of the church, not just to be vindicated. And he wins the argument. And so they come and they say, would you please leave? I'm so sorry what we did. We're going to post a retraction in the paper. On the 5 o'clock news, they're going to say that lawsuit was unjust. Oh, if that only would be the case. Um, and, and so he does that. And he leaves. But he leaves after encouraging the church. Here's the bottom line. 
Oh, friends, the risen Lord Jesus overcomes opposition to his mission. I love this scripture. Friend, whatever opposition that you're facing, the Lord directed you into it, and the Lord's going to deliver you from it. I love this scripture. We're going to end with this scripture and say the amen on this scripture. John 16, 33. Jesus says the following. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. There it is. Isn't that a great promise? I want to claim that one, Lord. But take heart, dear church. I have overcome the world. Amen? Church, let me bless you, if you're a Christian, with these words. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.